He fingered the Chris knife at his waist, thinking of the past it symbolized, thinking that more than once he had sympathized with rebels whose abortive uprisings had been crushed by his own orders. Confusion washed through his mind, and he wished he knew how to obliterate it, returning to the simplicities represented by the knife. But the universe would not turn backward. It was a great engine projected upon the gray void of non-existence. His knife, if it brought the deaths of the twins, would only reverberate against that void, weaving new complexities to echo through human history, creating new surges of chaos, inviting humankind to attempt other forms of order and disorder. Stilgar sighed, growing aware of the movements around him. Yes, these attendants represented a kind of order, which was bound around Maudib's twins. They moved from one moment to the next, meeting whatever necessities occurred there. Best to emulate them, Stilgar told himself. Best meet what comes when it comes. The very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, just want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a buck a month there, or you know, if not, leave us a nice review on iTunes. For this episode, maybe something like Fear is the Mind Killer. I'm very excited about today's episode in general, and uh, very pleased that uh, Greg Sadler has agreed to uh, come and speak with us about Children of Dune, and I think most of our listeners will be familiar with Greg's YouTube channel, and I think in particular the Hegel work you've done, in addition to you know just a, a lot of topics on the history of philosophy. But uh, I think you've also done a review of our of uh, my friend uh, Elliot Rosenstock's book, recent book on the ego and the hyperstate. So, Greg, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us about Children of Dune, and I guess the overall the the philosophy of Dune itself. Well, you're very welcome. And I'm, I'm glad to be back on and I've been looking forward to this for a while. It was a great excuse to do some guilty pleasure reading. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, speculative fiction. I've been, I've been doing this series called worlds of speculative fiction for a while. And I also mm-hmm. do some, uh, you know, some, I've got speculative fiction studies, which is a little bit of a grandiose term for what I'm doing, but it lets me go back and read and reread things that I, I haven't done and probably wouldn't get back to. I mean, I've been wanting to go back to the original Dune book for a while, but the idea of going through the series wasn't something that occurred to me until you proposed this, uh, this episode. And now actually, let me ask you this. Sure. So six books in the series, one of them is super, super famous and, you know, is getting made into films and stuff like that. That's the first book, Dune. Why Children of Dune? Why that particular third volume for a topic of study. So for me, I just felt like the first book, you know, I think he kind of hints at, you know, there's definitely things you can pick up on 
that I think are relative, you know, or relevant rather, and you could apply them to, you know, a lot of stuff from anti-Oedipus, but, you know, it just becomes, I think, as you continue on, at least through God Emperor becomes philosophy and the ideas become progressively more and more, I don't know, integrated into the narrative, it seems, Mm, because I feel like in Messiah, and I don't know, maybe both of you can speak to this. So the first half of the book, before we meet the character of hate or, you know, the Duncan Idaho Gola, and then, you know, it's pretty in line with Dune. And then I think hate starts to spout a lot of the Zen Zuni philosophy. Yeah. Which I think is just, you know, maybe something that, because I know Herbert himself, you know, biographically speaking was Catholic, but then he became a Buddhist. I think that may have had some behind some of the impetus for that inclusion of this sort of Zen philosophy aspect that Duncan Idaho brings. But then I think really in the third book is where the philosophy really dominates the, it's almost like a lot of people complain about the book being difficult to read because it's so, it almost really is sort of this mouthpiece for Herbert's philosophies. And then of course that cult that really culminates, I think in God emperor weirdly at the end, the final two books, which would be what heretics Heretics. and chapter house, House, then it becomes, it goes back to being a little bit more action oriented and less philosophy so it's kind of a weird evolution that he takes maybe across he got the some, series he got some feedback right and <laughs> hey more 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 uh more action more of the the fun stuff but I, I, you, you know i had read also i guess to to color that you know i had read this when i was in high school and i think maybe that sort of you know what i mean because the kids the twins are like every adult that they come into contact with throughout the narrative they're just totally they're owning them. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're really dominating them and just making them look extremely foolish. So maybe there was kind of like a, maybe there's a sort of <laughs> Nietzschean element to it. You know what I mean? Can you read Nietzsche as like a, as a frustrated teenager or, or, <laughs> and it sort of sticks with you. So I think maybe it's, it's that that sort of gripped me. Some wish fulfillments, you know, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. with the characters who do the yeah. things that you wish you could have done. And yeah. Who wouldn't like to be, you know, filled with a million different personalities that they have to try to draw upon and integrate without letting them take them over, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, speaking of anti-Oedipus, that is something that came to mind with uh, especially like the, the notion of the the Kwisatz Tataract and having all the different personalities and the, the destratifications that can come too soon with like Aaliyah, right? Having right. the Having the the Baron Harkonnen grandfather ego memory take over and the and that being a destructive line, but the other side of it too being someone like Leader the Second, you know, obviously the God Emperor being able to tap into those those voices, that kind of the process of schizophrenia, if you wanna if you wanna like think about it that way as a creative line. That almost seems like Leader the Second was an excuse to do some of that philosophy stuff. Coop, what do you think? Do you think that's like almost was an excuse for Herbert to be able to to go into this this more cerebral aspect? Is building this larger than life character? Yeah, I I mean I I absolutely think so. Especially now I know I, you didn't get a chance to read God Emperor, but that's no. really where and a lot of people that's their favorite book of the series is God Emperor. It, uh, children is the one that gets I think the most. Children and Messiah are kind of the two that. Uh, at least bastard. out of those four they're the bastard that children think, yeah they get sort of you get the most complaints about and That's then people love god emperor 
I haven't run across anybody who really likes God Emperor that much, <laughs> including myself, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I like it. It's part of the series. I do think it is pretty didactic. One of the things that Herbert did that you see a lot of other people imitating later on is having little vignettes from a document at the beginning yes. of each chapter. Yes, and, yes. I mean, almost all of them in God Emperor are from his secret, well, let's call them secret notebooks because I'm forgetting the name of them, right? And so mm-hmm. he's revealing his ideas and his plans. I think they're not all. There's there's a few that are from other people's things as well, but you don't have the, whatever you want to call it, diverse points of view, you know, heterogeneity. It's, it's yeah, all very yeah. of a, of the same, you know? I was thinking about how much I mentioned before we started to Greg about Wheel of Time. And I don't know, I know that Coop may not have read it, but Greg, I don't know if you've read it, but so much of Wheel of Time now comes into focus reading Dune and how much oh. Robert Jordan pulled from it. Particularly, well, one of the things you, you said, the sort of the histories, whether it be mm-hmm. from Irulan or um, I'm forgetting the pen name for Maneo, his advisor later, who kind of becomes one of the historians to write down Leto the second stuff. But you have, right, you have the the, the little epigraphs at the yeah. beginning, the little subsections. You see a lot of that in um, in Wheel of Time. But also, even even though it only comes up once in the first book, the notion of the Shaitan notion, even that's like directly stolen. And he becomes, Shaitan becomes one of the names for the for the bad guy in, in Wheel of Time, just to simplify. But anyway, okay. I'm glad to go back and read this. Dune was one of my dad's favorite books. He was a big sci-fi nerd, Asimov, and uh, but definitely Dune was one of his favorites. So going back and, and reading this, getting to read the first few novels, you know, made a lot of impact for me. And I remember when I visited Coop back in November, we watched the original movie, the quote-unquote original, the Lynch yeah, yeah. version. And uh, since I hadn't read the book, I, I did ask a lot of questions, but... Coop and his uh, roommate were were nice and like filled me in on a lot of the stuff. And it's um I can kind of see why Lynch would be interested. I would have liked to have seen what Lynch would have done depicting Leto the second as the kind oh, of yeah. as the god emperor sandworm hybrid. I'm sure he would have done something fun with that. You know, there are some things that are I won't say easy to do because not everybody can do them, but at least easier in a medium like film to do, like do really cool fight scenes or dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, backgrounds or, you know, zooming in on cool features of characters and stuff like that. One of the things that I think is a, a massive challenge for adapting Dune, and it's one that I think is is really tough for a lot of different film or, or TV adaptations of um you know, a deep complex series is capturing the interplay of a number of different, not just characters, but forces, Ooh. ideological forces. Like, you mm-hmm. know, in Dune, you've got House Carino, the emperor, you've got these two different, you know, houses. One is very good, like the Atreides, and mm-hmm. one is very bad, like the Harkonnen. But you also have the the guild in the background. You have the the Bene Gesserits. Yeah, the Bene yeah. Gesserit. You have the Fremen themselves, right? And it's interesting because there was there was a tabletop game that was developed by Avalon Hill years and years and years ago mm, when, mm-hmm. before that company went defunct. And it had those six as the players. So you could take gotcha. on one, one or another. And, you know, it kind of makes sense. For example, Martin's Game of Thrones, which has lots right. and lots of moving parts similarly. Right. And how 
poorly adapted it was by the showrunners and somebody had written somebody's got an essay out there the the classification they used was the showrunners are used to doing the typical hollywood stuff with psychological stories as opposed to sociological stories interesting you know and then with with dune we've clearly got an ecological story as well right right, right. So how do you bring that to film in a way that's Good. I mean, Lynch would be a good candidate for doing that, except I don't think he succeeded in getting across <laughs> the machinations behind the scenes, right? Right. Going on, which are philosophies, essentially. I was going to say Villeneuve, Villeneuve seems to have captured making Dune itself, the atmosphere, if you want to yeah. let that stand up for the ecology, that seemed to be given pride of place as a, as a character, right? This, the whole immense the immensity of the desert comes across somewhat. So it's, it's interesting to see what he'll do in the second part, if that will yeah. continue to inspire, as you said, that, that ecological aspect too, needing to have voice. Yeah. And I think with uh, the second part, we're going to be, those of us who've read the books are going to be looking really at how he treats the Fremen. Right now we've got, oh, they're, you know, these wandering desert people. They like to fight with knives, you know, it's kind of, I'm not going to trivialize it because it is, it was a, you know, I watched it. It was, it was quite impressive, but it's not yet conveying what Herbert brought before our eyes in, in his text. He is beginning to hint, I think, at some of the things that are coming. It's yeah. funny, they even had cited a line or they stole a line from children in the part one of the Villanueva movie, rather. It was something about life is not, life is a, a reality to be experienced. Yeah, you put that in your notes a couple of it's times. It's not a, not a process to be overcome or something. It's a, reality to be experienced i'd have right. to pull up the exact quote it's, but it was interesting to see that come up in the film that sounds similar to a, a thing that gets attributed to kierkegaard quite a bit um, interesting i'm trying to remember the formulation but it's along it's along a similar lines but i'm not sure where in kierkegaard works it's supposed to arise you know so it might actually be an apocryphal you know it's also interesting because greg you brought up the tabletop game so it's really neat that there was actually in terms of video games, the very first Dune game became like incredibly influential among, I think it's like these like command and conquer style games yeah. for PC or something. I don't know. My roommate I, showed I me this video on YouTube. In college. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I was a terrible roommate. This is total <laughs> trivia, but you know, I was a heavy smoker. You know, I'd even <laughs> exercised and I had this poor roommate. And we didn't have like air conditioning or anything. We're in these, these oh, no. storms. This is back in like the, the 90s. And I would sit in the summer and I was working like second shift security. So for the college, so I could just like screw off during most of the day. Yeah. And I would sit there and I'd be blasting. At that time, it was the CD that I had on like constant rotation was Pearl Jam's one. Mm-hmm. So I'd be blasting that through the mm-hmm. speakers, chain smoking, sitting in front of my PC, playing almost always as the, the Atreides. Every, every once in a while, I'd play as the Harkonnens. And then they had that made up non-canon thing, the Ordo, right? Where you could have spies and stuff. And I'd okay. play for hours and hours. And the poor bastard, I mean, he, he was lucky he had a mom in town because he would go <laughs> and like stay with her. And um, yeah, I was, I was, I was a pretty bad roommate, but I got locked into it. You know, you know, it is with video games, right? You start playing it and mm-hmm. hours go past. And yep. especially if you've got like, you know, fridge stocked with sodas or beer and, yep. Uh, yep. you know, cigarettes to smoke and stuff like that. That's all you need. That's all you yeah. need. Yeah. And then the curtains pulled, you know, so that uh, it was really dark in the room as well. <laughs> One kind of cool note is that in Anti-Oedipus, 
not uh, Antiochus, rather a thousand plateaus. Delos and Guattari directly cite Children of Dune. I've pulled the passage. It's in the treatise on nomadology, the War Machine section. And I, what I might do is go ahead and read this a little bit. Yeah. This passage. And then I think I even grabbed the text from the page that they cited as well. And so this might be a good place to start out the conversation in earnest. I don't know if you guys sure. agree or have any thoughts on that. Yeah. yeah. Does that sound good? Nomad organization is indissolubly arithmetic and directional. Quantity is everywhere. Tens, hundreds, direction is everywhere. Left, right. The numerical chief is also the chief of the left or the right. The numbering number is rhythmic, not harmonic. It is not related to cadence or measure. It is only in state armies and for reasons of discipline and show that one marches in cadence. But autonomous numerical organization finds its meaning elsewhere. Whenever it is necessary to establish an order of displacement on the steppe, the desert, at the point where the lineages of the forest dwellers and the figures of the state lose their relevance. He moved with the random walk, which made only those sounds natural to the desert. Nothing in his passage would indicate that human flesh moved here. It was a way of walking so deeply conditioned in him that he didn't need to think about it. The feet moved of themselves, no measurable rhythm to their pacing. In the war machine and nomadic existence, the number is no longer numbered, but becomes a cipher. And it is in this capacity that it constitutes the esprit de corps and invents the secret and its outgrowths which would be strategy, espionage, war ruses, ambush, diplomacy, etc. A ciphered, rhythmic, directional, autonomous, movable, numbering number. The war machine is like the necessary consequence of pneumatic organization. Moses experienced it with all its consequences. This will kind of repeat a little bit of the text, but this will be the actual citation that they're making from the text of Children of Dune. Leto was far out on the sand when he heard the worm behind him, coming to his thumper there and the dusting of spice he'd spread around the dead tigers. There was a good omen for this beginning of their plan. Worms were scarce enough in these parts most times. The worm was not essential, but it helped. There would be no need for Ganema to explain a missing body. By the time he knew that Ganema had worked herself into the belief that he was dead, only a tiny isolated capsule of awareness would remain to her a walled-off memory which could be recalled by words uttered in the ancient language shared only by the two of them in all of the universe. Setcher Nui. If she heard those words, golden path, only then would she remember him. Until then, he was dead. Now Lido felt truly alone. He moved with the random walk, which made only those sounds natural to the desert. Nothing in his passage would tell that the worm back there, human flesh moved here. It was a way of walking so deeply conditioned in him that he didn't need to think about it. The feet moved of themselves, in a measurable rhythm to their pacing. Any sound his feet made could be ascribed to the wind, to gravity, no human past here. So there's a couple angles or divergences that we could take discussion-wise here. What I think, you know, the two, I'll just lay these out and maybe throw it to one of you. One angle that we could go in and probably be a good sustained thread would be the way that Muad'Dib, I think, captures the Fremen war machine and appropriates it and uses it against the existing empire. So there's that line. There's also what I think this is perhaps also referring to could be becoming imperceptible. And along those lines, this would be something like, because I think what's interesting too, and along those lines would be the Fremen as a whole, right? Their sort of society, they're like very attuned to their milieu on Arrakis through the the way that their you know their economy being based on water retention and so forth and also how that kind of overcodes their sort of very strict hierarchy within the, or not not necessarily a hierarchy but 
I guess the so the socius of the Fremen tribe is a very highly coded thing, right? For survival, you know, water's the most valuable substance on the planet, keeping them alive. So I think that's another perhaps interesting economic, you know, maybe even libidinal economics we can get into. But I don't know if either one of you have thoughts on either one of these potential lines. I mean, I do want to say this. I think you're right in using the word hierarchical. It's not a hierarchy that is established once and for all. There's mobility within it, right? But you retain the hierarchy. So like you become a Sietch leader, right? Um, Or you challenge somebody and you move up in that way and you take their water too after you kill them. You have moved up, but the structure remains the same, right? Yeah, just be like a sort of, that's almost kind of like our standard sort of, I don't know, not revolution perhaps like, there's a sort of change, but ultimately the structure remains, right? Like we're not addressing these sort of fundamental yeah, and, and, pillars and, or strata. You know, with the Fremen, at least in Dune, while Liet Keynes is still around motivating them as somebody who's bringing knowledge about how things could be transformed, there is a revolution going on. And it's out of the sight of the Empire and the Harkonnens who control the planet and the Atreides are able to tap into it not while they not while they first get there because obviously you know they're done in by this big plot and stuff like that but they're already laying the grounds for that with gurney halleck going off to the smugglers and paul and his mother jessica um going off with the fremen he's already met stilgar right at the beginning i think so it's not not a mere like cyclical repetition of social structure they are going to change Arrakis, eventually, they're just not sure how the hell it's going to happen, given the massive forces that they're dealing with. And then, you know, luckily, Paul Atreides comes along and everything slides into place. But then, I mean, you you look at Dune Messiah and the jihad has taken place. You're right. there There is a war machine and the war machine quickly morphs into something that is kind of business as usual, just, you know, different bosses, different different faces. Yeah, but in a certain sense, you're right. It has the essence of the war machine. It it kind of obviously goes against, you know, even in Dune originally, it goes against the Empire and and the Confederacy of of houses that have kind of teamed up to want to get their own little share of the spice trade. I was thinking about what Coop said about becoming imperceptible, and even in even in the, mm. with the Fremens, you see that they're. There are concentrations of Fremens who kind of act as the surplus laborers in the in the kind of little townships. But then there's the right. sieges, which are, for the most part, incalculable. They kind yes. of evade the metric system, the numbering, yeah. and they're and they're underestimated for that reason. One of the maybe subterranean threads, not to pun, is how many of them are there. This is a question yeah. that gets asked from a lot of different angles, from the Harkonnens to the to the Emperor to even Paul Atreides and, and Leto Atreides themselves. There is this kind of rumbling about how many millions there are, and it and it, we never get a definite answer. So they evade the numbered number that is the kind of the state apparatus's means of calculation, and you can see this as directly opposed to knowing exactly how many legions of Sardukar are coming. There's what, at least two legions that are dressed up as Harkonnens and what that's about 30,000 men, I think is something like that, that they, uh, maybe 3000, I forget the, in any case, the count of the numbers we get kind of like there's three legions of Harkonnens and two of the Sardukar, whatever, but, but there is a numbered, numbered labeled of them, but there is this 
more incalculable numbering number insofar as the seats, unlike the, if there are these little polises, these little towns that have aggregated and cut up space, there is with the siege kind of more of an open distribution, right? As Deleuze always wants to kind of use the nomos as, as opposed to the polis. And so there's that aspect of it too, I think that is, is important. And it goes to that question of their imperceptibility, their incalculability, and also to this quoted section about the, the sort of, obviously you can't do a march on the desert, you're going to, right. that, your armies are going to be eaten up. You have to do something that doesn't have cadence, the cadence of a march, the cadence of a, of a state that has appropriated a military machine, right? That's, that, I think that's one of those, another one of those little fundamental axioms in this plateau is about the difference between an appropriated war machine that becomes a military machine versus the sort of the war machine we're seeing and we're talking about with the Fremen. And I guess one of the things too that I thought was really interesting was that, and I know this has to do with the the prophecies that are planted for however many millennia by the the Bene Gesserit priestesses, but this notion that an outsider of the group will come into the group and sort of marry into the group, whether, I don't know if that's part of the prophecy, but, but will become their Messiah and their leader. I think this points to anti-Oedipus as well with the formation of an imperial state. It has to be this paradoxically exogamous, endogamous, incestuous relationship that creates the state. The despot is one that kind of overcodes the lineages and informs this crazy new alliance, which I think culminates in the jihad, as, as we talked about. Those are just some of those um, little lines. If we're going to bring in Deleuze and Guattari and, and sort of rhizomatically spawn off into the into the into the books. <laughs> well, you know, springboarding off of that, going back to the thing about the you can't march across the desert. You know, with a military. So if we take the Sadhakar as an example, right? They're they're the prime military. They've got training that puts everybody else at a disadvantage. Although the mm-hmm. Atreides are getting close, apparently. And right, right. Eliminate them. So you've got training and that's one aspect of it. And then you've got deployment, which is what you're talking about. Right. There. Doesn't do any good to have the best weapons. I mean, this is part of what we're seeing in, in Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, the Russian army is not only you know poorly trained, but is incredibly bad at actually deploying in a battlefield Interesting. in terms of logistics, right? Mm-hmm. And so what should have been a fairly easy, straightforward milita- military operation based on what everybody was thinking about Russia turned out to be impossible for them. You know? and mm-hmm. So now we've got this quagmire that's that's going on. <clears throat> and there's really nobody who can deploy in the desert as a military force unless they have adapted themselves to the desert the way the Fremen have with right. um, concealment and also, mm-hmm. you know, not taming, but harnessing the worms. And so the Sadakar <clears throat> are, are desert angry. power, right? Yeah, exactly. And they're, and they're and they're unprepared for for that sort of thing. I mean, much much later on in God Emperor with these fish speakers, right? The only real military force left. I mean, you do have things like the Talaxu face dancers who but they're really the only military force left and there are no worms anymore. Arrakis has been turned into this, you know, wonderful planet that uh, can't produce uh, the the spice cycle anymore. They can deploy essentially anywhere. Right. And right. I guess to bring this to a close, in a way, one of the dreams of anybody who is taken by the military mind 
is a military that can not only outmatch other people quantitatively in mm-hmm. like better equipment or better training mm-hmm. or something like that, but to be able to go everywhere, to to go into any niche and bring greater force to bear. And we see over and over again, when that does work, it produces sterility. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why Leto well, it's part of why Paul first and then Leto want something different for the the galaxy than what their followers have have produced. What that's going to look like at the end of uh, God Emperor is unclear, but then it gets it's filled out in the later novels. Taylor, it's really interesting that you brought up this exogenous figure. It's an interesting sort of dichotomy or like dialectic between Leto too and Paul in that way, in the sense that you know Paul really becomes the despot. Obviously, we see that shake out in Messiah. But what is also interesting relative to that is how important the way that he is controlled is by one is like love, but then there's offspring. Those are the two, really, maybe the offspring are sort of the biggest thing at stake or his biggest, not exactly a vulnerability, but just to contrast this to somewhat like what Leto does is he forgoes his direct descendants like you know what i mean he, yes. he foregoes children directly yes which is interesting as opposed to paul actually has direct heirs versus yeah, leto who kind of stands outside by this he sort of castrates himself in a sense and then you know this we could really even go yeah. further into like yeah, yeah. schraber then, a little bit yeah, too because yeah. i feel like he's almost becoming like he's born a man then he transitions to worm and then in the end of God Emperor, whenever he dies, right, he gives birth to the new worms. So he repopulates Arrakis with a new species, a new Taylor. You might be able he to gives, take, he gives, take that he and give, run with it. <laughs> well, yeah, he gives birth to the new humanity through the golden path on the one yeah. hand, but he gives birth like Schraber, but he gives birth to the new, well, the new spice givers, right? With, yeah. with the worms. And so he gives also birth to a new, a new world after he's already changed it. And so there's that aspect too. And obviously to uh, the incestuous moment where after the imposition of the sort of castration or, or even a becoming worm in the becoming woman, there's some pun there that I can't figure out yet, but he marries his sister, right? He marries Ganema to make sure that she is not held open for some other house to come and marry, right? He doesn't leave his sister open right. uh, to, oh, a- to make sure the empire isn't sort of seated away, appropriated by another house right, away right. from Atreides. So there yeah. is that aspect too. And I do think that the... Which is interesting given that the whole thing is kicked off by Jessica bearing a son to Leto, right? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Which could have been in a female child could have been married to fade and sealed this and harmonized everything right. in terms of this this sort of what is it it's like a feud that's been going on i think dating back to the butlerian jihad but that's just for additional color well what she was supposed to give birth to a uh, a girl yeah a, a girl, a girl yeah. that that would marry into the harkonnens correct and then that child that would, would be, be the quitsat cataract which so would he, but but it, that would be another form of the incest since she herself was right her daughter a Baron Harkonnen. Yeah. Right. So, so that, that would be another form of incest going on. And, and of course that's, I think that's even discussed several times in Messiah and children of Dune, this notion that of course, for the Fremen that is outlawed, that is sort of against their way of, and it, Stilgar, you know, he's, he's kind of abhorred by it, but he's being told, look, this has happened. This always happens with royalty, right? There's all this kind of inbreeding 
you could say incest is a matter of degrees, right? So yes. brother and sister, total incest right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, breeding as the Bene Gesserit are doing Harkonnens and Atreides together that are, you know, like cousins, mm-hmm. maybe not quite so much. It, right. you, know, you look at this in the middle ages when it became like a political issue. Well, you know, I don't, I, I like the wife right now, so maybe it's not incestuous, but <laughs> fall out. So then I find a bishop who can say that, yes, this is consanguaneous and we have to get rid of this marriage. I think a lot of this is once you get thing, away from, yeah. yeah, once you get away from like, you know, nuclear family, you know, like uh, yeah. brother, sister, mother, son, father, daughter, and you start getting off into these breeding programs, it becomes a much more pragmatic determination, which, yes. which, is, which is tied in with, you know, sort of feelings of disgust or revulsion, mm-hmm. um, proscriptions, right? But it's it's how far you can push it, you know? So, and, and I mean, what do we make of Leto's breeding program? Everybody's in Atreides, right? And then he's got Duncan Idaho, like, bred in at multiple points, but Duncan is not quite what he was because he's been messed with in these these uh tanks by the talks. <laughs> it, was, it was wrapping my head around some of this, you know, trying to trying to understand this breeding program that, that's being referenced in God Emperor of Dune. It's really hard to visualize generation after generation of people who are it seems chosen by, or, or at least arranged, things are manipulated in such a way so that even though they, you know, like Idaho says, I'm not a stud, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to make me have sex with this woman. Inevitably he does, you know, these things are engineered. Isn't that in some ways, it's not incestuous as such, but it seems there's something, something off-putting about it to say the least, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. because the Gola is in particular what differentiates a Gola between a clone is the clone is made from living tissue. The Gola is oh, made right. from dead, dead tissue, which I think adds a whole other element to this, a whole other weirdness <laughs> to this already yeah, I, very extremely weird yeah. situation. Relative I, I just to want to interject Duncan. one other thing that comes from that too, which is in that book, they talk at a number of points about Tlaxu nastiness. Like we're going to get this, you were subjected to Tlaxu nastiness in being the Gola. Let's get that all behind us. You cleanse the the new Duncan Idaho because there's, you know, who knows how many Duncan Idahos have been generated, but you've got to like wash that Tlaxu stink off of him. Yeah. And eventually he, doesn't he go on to sort of what, have a thousand sons and seven daughters with one of the Atreides with Siona who, who like actually kills Leto the second well they together they see like a new genetic trait route into the world that can avoid the prescient they can Uh, be what that what it does is they become imperceptible right they they, they see the imperceptibility in a different sense right because they can avoid the prescience which again is is this story of lineages and alliances that we're talking about right Um, and it gets even more meta because there are beings that are (coughs) even more that are even beyond just to get into the real spoiler crazy shit territory (laughs) with this is the silaxu face dancers start being able to absorb memories so then they become like these basically people that never die like they become these sort of godlike creatures and i think the very end so there's like this even higher dimensional being these higher dimensional beings that leto is trying to prevent from being i think from being uh yeah perceived by by those beings you know i mean in in sci-fi and fantasy stuff that is not 
that unusual, right? You think about, you know, you transfer from one body to another, you know, your mind or stuff like that, for example, in um, Philip Jose Farmer's World of Tears, right? Where the, mm. the, the uh, godlike figures, I forget exactly what they're called. They do this fairly routinely so they can live a long time. Or, you know, we have other things where, and of course, you know, there's all sorts of mechanics that would have to be worked out to make this happen, but you basically swap somebody's consciousness from one body to the next and just keep going that way. So that doesn't strike me as something, you know, radically new. The idea going back to, you know, Paul Atreides at, at first, and then Leto and, and Alia and, and Anima of having the burden of carrying around ancestors who talk within you. I mean, you think back, yes, to, yes, like how, how big your family tree is, you know, potentially you've, you've got just about everybody, you know, you go back far enough in, in, um, I don't remember whether it's in children or in God Emperor, but Leto talks about remembering the first Atreides. And these are supposed to be like Agamemnon, you know, the, the legendary Atreides who may or may not have existed. But in, in this, he's real and he's way, way back there, but not there's even further back. I forget the name of the, the oldest of the personalities, you know, uh, well, you talk about Harum. The, yeah, yeah. The 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 pharaoh, so to speak, that later the second claimed claims is like this cruel kind of Hammurabi esque type. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And now think what it would be like to survive, but stuck inside somebody else who may or may not ever become conscious of you. <clears throat> You're competing <throat> with like a million other voices, and maybe they'll bring you in as part of I don't know, like a council or something, or maybe some other voice. You know, if you got a Baron Harkonnen in there, that jerk will take over, and you'll never get a chance to to say anything, but you're stuck there. And now you're not just stuck also in Paul Atreides. You're also stuck in Alia. You're also stuck in these kids, right? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how the, the becoming woman that Cooper brought up earlier with Lita II kind of really crystallizes the what the Bene Gesserits are building up to with the Kwisatz Haderach, right? Yeah. Which, which is supposedly going to be one of the first beings that can access the ancestral cellular, you know, microcosmic memories of male and female. There is this line in like the first Dune book about after Paul takes the sip of the water of life, you know, he goes comatose for a couple of weeks, but when he, when he's kind of revived, he has this vision of becoming more than a man, right. Of, of yeah. no longer being just a man. And, and he has this vision of, of, of these two essences of the giving and taking, which is very kind of, uh, you know, yin yang type thing, but being able to tap in to both sides, uh, being able to, to take and to give and, and this becoming more than a man, which I think Cooper here is indicating in the notes, something along the lines of what we're talking about with these, these proliferation names that aren't just the memories, yeah, yeah. uh, but, but also the, the different names of, uh, of Paul as Usul or uh, Muad'Dib, Emperor. I'll let you guys take over from, from there. I was just kind of thinking yeah. of, of all, all of these multiplicities that we're dealing with. Since Greg mentioned the Twi'lek Sioux, I just wanted to bring up really quickly one interesting angle, of, I guess, about the sort of libidinal economics of this would be that it's interesting that the Bene Gesserit, who are all women, 
are the yeah. sort of stewards of this sort of breeding program within the Imperium. So that's kind of a reversal from like historically the way that the training of women or the exchange of women has been. That was like the original libidinal economy uh, at the sort of at the tribal level and maybe even pre or prehistoric, etc. To contrast that with the Tlailak Sioux, for the Tlailak Sioux, they actually have no women. Their women are the, the axolotl tanks. Yeah, yeah. So it's this very, like, they've really instrumentalized reproduction and really appropriate. It's such a, like, it's taking the appropriation of reproductive labor of, like, human women and then, like, extrapolating to the nth degree. Like, it's it's really bearing out that line of logic all the way till its, its most extreme point in terms of, I guess, the sort of mechanization of reproduction. Yeah. But I also think, you know, it's kind of interesting that Leto... Then Leto appropriate reappropriates as this sort of sort of phallic emperor the breeding program, and then at sort of the end, then the the Bene Gesserit sort of become the more more like the protagonists at sort of the the final two books in the whole series. One of the other names too we should remember that we learn about Paul's identity is the preacher. That's not That's here. True. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, cagey for a long time about that, right? Maybe he is, maybe maybe the <laughs> right. is, maybe the preacher isn't. And then right. towards the end of um, of is it Children of Dune? He he's clear about it. Yeah. I think. Yes. There's another series, and I did want to talk about a few other series by by comparison mm-hmm. um, to this with the um, turning women into essentially breeding tanks. I wonder if our Scott Bakker took that from Frank Herbert. If it, either mm-hmm. of you've read the Prince of Nothing series, we find out in the third book, The Thousandfold Thought, I think it was, or maybe it's maybe it's later in the series, that this group of monks who've withdrawn into sort of a safe space away from all the evil creatures that are that are trying to take over the land and have been become pretty inhuman themselves, have effectively turned all of their their women into i mean they're described as something sort of like whales but they're just they're for breeding you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and this this is a sign of like the recognizing this i i think actually it is in in the later um parts of the series the aspect emperor quadrilogy they're recognized as as evil because of this you know mm-hmm. something that they didn't see is evil themselves and that's precisely a sign of how depraved they've become yeah, it is interesting to think that there is an interesting dynamic about where the power lies because obviously the Bene Gesserits are almost the penultimate sort of order of power and, and manipulation. And, and so it's not necessarily that, that women are, are completely powerless, obviously, obviously to the contrary, right? It is, but on the other hand, it is interesting that other forms of power are typically masculine. For the most part, I mean, the leaders of the houses, it seems, the yeah. emperor, the Sardukar, but maybe with the Fremen, it's hard to, it seems like the their war machine is, is both male and female, at least right. is what I got. And there is an interesting question where, where power lies, because then it becomes more complicated after the first Dune, where with like the, what, with, with the Tlilaxu, they're almost amorphous, right? They, they can, they're, they're like, polysexual they can kind of kind of transform well, yeah, the face dancers yeah yeah sure. they're also a different kind of in between 
of becoming that that is different than the Kwisatz Haderach. Now that I remember, too, that was something else that I was struck mm-hmm. by recently with respect, again, to our Scott Backer. So I don't know if either of you have read his his second apocalypse stuff, but he's got these things that are called skin spies and they have they've been developed genetically mm-hmm. by, by the big baddies in it. Um, and they've got instead of like actual features like we do in bones and stuff, they've got a whole bunch of appendages on their face and they can basically imitate anybody. And they sound so much like face dancers that you're like, you know, we know which, which of these came first. Did you just like lift this out of there? I mean, mm. not to knock backer because he's a great storyteller, the really awesome world building, lots of philosophy built in there as yeah. well, but it does seem suspiciously similar. It's interesting. <laughs> you brought him up because he's one of my wife's favorite authors and she's constantly told me to try to get him on the podcast. So just to, you know, if you're listening out there, Scott or Scott, you know, we'll contact you at some point. Um, that would be really cool. <laughs> like kind of dropped off the, the map. Ah, uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, you know. Yeah, the one of the things she she said was she loved the the stuff so much. It was the philosophy stuff she wanted me to to read the books for me and Coop to like yeah. explain it to explain those that side of it. But I guess I want to I want to jump in with a question for both of you since this is where we are in the part of the notes. I want to know about Herbert's the backstory for Dune with the Butlerian Jihad, which is mm. sort of this prehistory or the it's the sort of antecedent to the story of Dune where, and I think it coincides with the rise of the Bene Gesserits, if I'm understanding the history correctly, where there were these machines, these thinking machines that supposedly had artificial intelligence capabilities, right? Because part of the, the axiom after this war against the machines was you won't make a, a machine in the likeness of a human. I want to know a little bit about this yeah. backstory and how it informs the Dune universe. If you guys want to say anything about that, just as just for my benefit. You know, there's a place, and I don't remember exactly where it is in God Emperor of Dune, where Leto is talking maybe with Idaho or maybe, maybe with one of the fish speakers, and he's t- he, he's referencing the thinking machines. And he says Mm -hmm. that the problem wasn't just that there were the thinking machines. It's that human beings had begun to think like the thinking machines. Ah, interesting. That they were adapting themselves around it. And I mean, we see stuff like this in in critiques of technology all the time. Yes. Yes. Gabriel Marcel has this wonderful phrase that we become prey to our own techniques, you know, but Mm -hmm. so many other people have said that sort of thing. It leads to a kind of remodeling ourselves as if as if we are just mechanistic machines and this is different i think than you know the sort of stuff that uh, to bring in you know deleuze again you know like when he talks about machines like for example when, when he's looking at Leibniz in the fold everything can be a machine but a machine is not a mechanism right yeah, yeah yes and I think that's a distinction that a lot of people lose. And and it, you don't have to like be super into artificial intelligence or machines to do that. You could just like be the kind of person who has a stock set of phrases and thinks that, you know, if they, they're going to do well in sales just by using this pattern and then they go home, you know, after the day and they don't think much about what they do and they watch some TV, eat a little something, go to bed, get up the next day, do it. They've effectively turned themselves into something like a machine or engagements with others are machine-like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. The, and the, you know, the, the issue is how to escape that sort of sterility 
And yes. I think this goes to the golden path thing, which you know we can talk about <clears> a bit more <throat> right, right. later. But Cooper, what do you think? Let's see. As far as the Butlerian Jihad, so it's not really Frank himself doesn't ever really get much into it. Now you do see, like Greg had pointed out, there's a little bit of discussion because Leto can access those memories. So it does yes. go into it, but it's never really addressed full on until the the prequels that are done by the sun, which a lot of people, including myself, are not the biggest fans of. It's not, it's not canon, right? In your eyes. Exactly. Yeah, but to, what should we what should we make of that sort of like reconstruction <laughs> uh-huh. after the fact? You're right. It's it's not canon, but it's presented as canon. Right? Yes. <laughs> I, I was making a joke, but 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 you know, I, I don't know what's canon or not. I just I think this I, is why George R.R. R. Martin doesn't want anyone to write to finish a Song of Ice and Fire if he passes away, <laughs> to be honest. Well, it's already happened, at least on the screen. So, yeah, yeah. true. Well, there's uh, there's another interesting case like this. Roger Zelazny, you know, the Chronicles of Amber. He he writes hmm. 10 books. Okay. And then, you know, he writes a ton of, ton of other stuff as well, right? And then he dies. And his estate... Contrary to Zelazny's expressed wishes, hires another guy to come in and write prequels because people love prequels, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of people who knew Zelazny who are like really, you know, kind of big names, including Martin, said, Yeah, this is a terrible idea. You should. <laughs> and I guess the books weren't, I've never read them, but I guess they're not very good at all. And that seems to be the way it works, right? Well, it's kind of the Hollywood effect of sequels and prequels and sort of milking things for for all their mining worth. ip yeah yeah mining ip but yeah but, I, but the the i guess one of the things i wanted to ask to reformulate the question before we move on is is the butlerian jihad a means for introducing the mentat mm. yes. into the world and thereby because the, i think without the mentat training that paul has and therefore leto has to a certain extent with accumulating all of those memories and those life experiences without the mentat becoming an essential aspect mm. would would the calculations of the future and the past and all that make as much sense i don't think so and i guess maybe you guys could say a word or two about mentats and that kind of human computer aspect insofar as it's important for the prescience because mentats with prescience seems like a like a very key aspect of so much of this time bending going on what do y'all think about that there's a lot to address here because i think one thing i wanted to add about the butlerian jihad is that what this goes to is this sort of very base materialism that Mm -hmm. herbert relies on where you know it's evinced by things like things that he says like uh what what is it a god created arrakis to train the faithful yes yes right so it's like he's very keen on like these darwinian oh the the genes are like one of the early scenes within god emperor that i wanted to bring up was he's watching siona atreides getting chased by by these d wolves and he's getting so excited because like the it's like the predator prey the pressure of the wolves is like making her the wild atreides gene like he's he's got this weird sort of oh yeah sort of vitalism i think Ooh. element of frank that i think gets expressed so i just think that butlerian jihad and removing machines from the earth thinking machines rather from the equation because we still do have machinery we just don't have mm-hmm. thinking machines necessarily but the training has the humans have to start emulating the machine they have to start taking on qualities of of, and, of the thinking machines and, and is, does that even extend to the to the guild 
navigators, they have some sort of mentat capacities in order to predict with the spices help. They're, they're doing a different. Yeah, they're doing something different. different they're just, they're just getting but, high as fuck, or I, is it? yeah. <laughs> I, but I do think I do think that Herbert is sophisticated enough that he thought that this mathematical approach, uh-huh. this this mm-hmm. very straightforward linear relying on empiricism was not going to be the gotcha. way you're never going to be able to understand the totality of the yeah. universe just purely with mathematics alone. gotcha 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 i get the sense that the, the mentats are not doing an awful lot of purely mathematical operations though they're you're doing right. i think they're doing they're, data analysis yeah they're doing they're, right they're working, okay. they're working with a sort of logic of which you see reflected in you know some medieval stuff and also like the mm-hmm. cultivation of dialectic and rhetoric mm-hmm. from the, right right from the the renaissance on this sort of more we need to take in all the possible information like you're saying data right analysis, right and some of it can be mathematized but we also need to be careful about what we can't and we can talk about say like probability yes curves yes and gotcha. things like that but, gotcha. but, but it's just you know what? What's probable? What's plausible? What what could be inferred from this? And it's interesting to see too that there's also reflections on the part of Paul and the part of Leto about what a mentat can and can't do. So there has to be something more than the mentat that can use the data that the mentat or the, not that the the inferences that the mentat yes gets the it, judgments. It does seem that prescience is a little bit different than what the mentat does. Is that correct? Prescience is, is, yeah, seems more you're being confronted with lots of information that would be temporally organized, but now is flooding you mm-hmm. as a, mm-hmm. a present. And, and to go back to the guild navigators, yeah, I mean, their, their prescience seems to be basically about where not to hit a meteor storm. <laughs> right, right. To- not to lose the track or something like that. Avoid the gra- yeah. gravity belts and stuff. Yeah. Or the yeah, asteroid belts. Them, I mean, space travel exists. It's just not as um, reliable. Yes. You know? Or yes. So, yeah. you know, this does go to kind of a logistical mathematization thing, because if you're going to spend the money to make a starship and load it up with cargo, you don't want it to have a 95% chance of getting there. You want it to be 100. You know? Yes. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. And and I, I was wondering, too, I'm just trying to remember from the Lynch version the blue stains of the Mentat, is this a different type of, uh, I, I've asked you this, Coop. Tell me this. Is this a different type of drug that they're using than the spice? Yeah, yeah this was the juice of Safu, and it's red, actually. Okay, gotcha. I was wondering about this interesting, before we move on, this interesting um, sort of pharmacological aspect to the to the stories. How much How much of addiction, or not even addiction, that's the wrong word, how much of the inputs from... Even living on on Arrakis, you're sort of you become addicted to the world, right? At least before yeah. it's before it's terraforming, because spice infuses everything, and almost in every breath, every piece of food, you become sort of infused with this magical mixture of this sort of essence of the cosmos, almost. Do you guys Elon want to say anything Buzzell, about? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to say something about about that? I guess this is another one of the main components of the whole series is is this spice and it's it's accumulation what it's it's yeah. it's capitalization it's hoarding it's it's scarcity and i guess the pharmacological effects that are they're made possible by these different drugs and these different uh, including like the different poisons the water of life there are all these 
substances that really enhance and make possible so much of the of the story's narrative. I think that is kind of a mechanism to help address the lack of, you know what I mean? That's what's interesting about this Butlerian Jihad angle is they had to seek out these other organic methodologies for right. solving these same sort of institutional or machine issue. You know what I mean? They still re- require these sort of machineries or machinisms gotcha. and had to have some type you know, of way to, to access those. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Cause if you think about both, machine technology and then we'll call it monomic technology. I mean, you may, you may as well call what the Bene Gesserit do and the Mentats is mm-hmm. Foucauldian technologies the self. I think <laughs> yeah, fits yeah. Really well. And then this pharmacological stuff, there's two ways you could look at them. And I think you do see people representing these two mindsets in these books. One is that, okay, this is pretty simple. The technology is a technology. I push the buttons and make it go. And mm-hmm. you know, if it's done to me, it makes me do certain things. And that's a very, I mean, it's, it's oversimplistic, it's reductionist, but you can get away with it in a lot of ways, right? We do this all the time in, in our lives. People are like, oh, I need to wake up. Uh, let me, let me take some caffeine in, in some, yes. form, right? We're yes. sort of like pushing, pushing our own buttons. And then there's the, something is happening to you because of, it could be, you know, training and discipline. It could be the drugs that you're being given. It could be past lives you're experiencing. It could be the technology that you actually have like that of, you know, the, the force shield and the knife that you have to learn how to use. And, and there's the other ways to see it as the human takes these things and doesn't treat them as mere instruments or tools, but they don't, dominate the human either it's still the you know and this is where like paul you know he takes the the spice and is the spice going to run him or is he going to run the spice is, right. is the question you know yeah including the risking his life taking the the water of life to finally test whether or not he's the police of Hatterack. i mean we're told very on in the opening pages about how many men have tried and died yeah. doing that but also, I was yeah. I was also thinking about even uh, with the the conflict between Irulan, the the sort of princess that he marries in order to ensure becoming emperor, and his his friend and concubine Chani. Yeah. You know, Irulan is is giving Chani these drugs, these contraceptives that eventually end up killing her. Yeah. So I don't very know. Very fateful I, there. Yeah. 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 I was wondering if part <laughs> of this was the '60s and the drug craze, but you know, who knows? There's also. You know, Sorry, Coop. Po- poison used between the houses to try to yep. assassinate, right? Quite mm-hmm. often. I forget the name. That's There's a name for that particular mode of going after your enemies. Oh, Canley? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are, yeah, there are, they have very formal rules as it applies to you can conduct a feud with another house, but there's only, there are very specific ways that you can do it. There's the poison snoopers that are omnipresent in the first right. book. There's all these, these machinisms to make sure that your food and your water is not being poisoned. And one of the ways that Harkonnen, who's clever when he appropriates Thufir Hawat as his sort of assassin and whatever, he gives him the poisons beforehand. And then instead of continuing to give him poison, he just gives him antidotes, which, which bypasses the snoopers. There's this interesting thread of the substances that are being imbibed, even with the the worms, and one of the only ways they can die is through water, which is obviously one of the most essential substances, especially to the Fremen and, and the the people of Dune. You know, and and that being the the main 
substance, obviously, is the conservation of water, which has, again, gets us back to this ecological bent that Herber's driving at. You know, that's that's a good place to, to bring in something else. The golden path, right? So yeah. it's framed in terms of avoiding catastrophe. I, for the life of me, cannot find in these books a clear formulation of what that catastrophe is supposed to look like, you know? Mm. So Leto takes on this burden, you know, whatever we want to call it of setting humankind on the right path. One that involves a lot of sacrifices, but is going to be less bad than any other course that could be taken. Right. And it, you know, it seems very quite interesting for the people who are, within the know, but for everybody else in the universe, it kind of sucks, you know, unless you're used to like living in a little village where you never go anywhere and you're never going to go off planet, you know, but it is pretty safe. There's no, you know, great houses feuding with each other or anything like that. But what, what's this terrible danger, you know, and I think about other sci-fi series where similar problems are being posed. What, you know, how should mankind or humankind, or even it could be expanded to like humans and other races together. How should we develop and not kill each other and also not degenerate into something inhuman? Dorsai, Gordon Dixon, this is a central problem for those novels. Mm -hmm. I think there's this, this arises for a number, uh, Ola Stapleton, who I, I did a thing on recently with star maker and, and um, I forget the other big novel um, similar problem that's being posed. You know, how do you have, how do you make room for heterogeneity for mm -hmm, mm -hmm. people to exercise initiative, to develop their humanity and very simply put not to turn into raging assholes who, you know, wind up uh, screwing everybody else's lives up, including, you know, human nature and, and the universe. Coop, you had some you had some notes on this, right? Uh, one of the threats it seemed to be was this threat of stagnation, and and some of that seems to come about in like what the preacher is railing against with the the sort of the order of these priests that have come up around the, the Maudib, yeah yeah around Maudib, and they've become fat on it, and they become stagnant. This I, at least one of the I don't think it's the only threat, but one of the threats seems to be this almost like Nietzschean theme of decadence and stagnation, whether it be stagnation of progress, like technologically, but also you have to assume it's biological, genetic, that, you know, given how, how central that is to the vitalistic impulse of the novels, I think that's one of the, the aspects that's being guarded against. But I'm not sure enough about the whole arc of the series to know what, what other possible problems are being addressed with the golden path. And it seems like the golden path also, I'm sure it has Buddhistic implications that I'm aware of, but also seems to be like a golden mean that maybe on one side there's stagnation. And on the other side is what you were talking about, Greg, with a sort of all out civil cosmic war. Which, which could destroy humanity. I mean, Lito, yeah. Lito talks in those terms that it's yes. not just like things are going to get worse for us. This is a non-optimal situation. It's yeah. like, if I don't do this, humanity dies. Yeah. I mean, it is a universe in which you can use atomics and destroy planets, but I don't know that all the houses have enough atomics to kill all the planets, you know? It's true. I was just going to say, in terms of the novel itself, Children of Dune, he describes the whole impetus for the golden path being the typhoon struggle of Krozilek, which I think is probably 
just based on the etymology or like the etymological roots, I'm thinking like this is probably a reference to Ragnarok and the sort of Norse mythology. Yeah. And this sort of final confrontation, I guess, between humanity and these beings that are like well beyond even Leto himself. And so that's kind of the ultimate goal of the Golden Path is to repress humanity so intensely that they never want to be this sort of crystallize themselves in these very stagnant societies where nothing ever really changes. And there, I guess, you know, that there's there's no conflict, I guess. There's no dialectic going yeah, on where yeah, there's one yeah. particular, one, uh, let's see, mode of being to rule them all, perhaps you may, might say. On the opposite side, though, I do have a certain take that this is, especially within God Emperor, I get the sense that, and maybe here's another point since you brought this up, Taylor's, I think Children of Dune seems a lot more Nietzschean in its approach. But then once you get to God Emperor, I think it takes a more Hegelian approach. And I see the Golden Path as almost this analog for like the Maoist cultural revolution. It's not only just this cultural change, like in Paul's Jihad, it's I've got to totally destroy the economy, the the breeding, etc. Commerce, all of these things have to be repressed in order to achieve the fulfillment of humanities, to keep a sort of vitalistic thing going in terms of humanity and its proliferation throughout the universe. I did look through the the Dune wiki and there were, there wasn't really a consensus about, apparently Herbert wasn't exactly clear the form the Golden Path is averting against, the threats. That's part of the fun is kind of maybe teasing it out through the hints Greg, you hit on it that one of the suggested threats was potentially whether it be aliens or these sort of higher dimensional beings that could be constructed through sort of other forms of prescient quizzes, hatteract, inbreeding and all this stuff. That was definitely one of the threats. And I think the other one was what Coop's talking about with this kind of stagnation where humanity, it's almost like the you know, the Fremen have this paradise now and what happens is they kind of just they become fat off the land, if you will. And, you know, there's that loss of the, I don't know what, what you wanted to say, the vitalistic drive or whatever that supposedly Leto is bringing out through some of the, the cruelest means, right? Through this repression, yeah. through this. Uh, I mean, you could call it a loss of genuine identity mm-hmm. that required a lot of um, work to produce and to maintain versus a taking on a reduced kind of fake identity. Cause there, I mean, there's yeah, yeah. museum Fremen and you know, it's interesting because one of the museum Fremen who's talked about, they characterize him as really wanting to know everything about the real Fremen, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. like experientially what they did, but he's, he's rare. And even in um, Dune Messiah and children of, of Dune, the Fremen are, they're there, but they're, they're having an identity crisis. They're yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just noting at the end of chapter house, which is the final book that Frank Herbert himself wrote, there is this reveal of these two characters. It's Marty. And I forget the other character. They see Duncan Idaho. They see Duncan Idaho within their perceptibility somehow for a moment, but then I think he disappears or something like that. So he destroys all the data on the ship, right? And goes off into the void, something like that. So this is where like it's getting into what Krozalek actually is, but he never really that's just he just begins to sort of hint at that. 
and these sort of higher dimensional things because these sort of new face dancers can absorb memories. So let's say they ran across a Reverend Mother, right? And the Reverend Mother has, you know, all that ancestral memory access. So the face dancers can immediately pick up all of those memories. They can accumulate knowledge at an even more accelerated pace. And so that spools off this positive feedback loop to where I think they eventually become these extremely higher dimensional beings that really threaten humanity as a whole. I think that's the ultimate. It's interesting though, because if you think about this, having access to more information just for us, you know, schlubs here in the 21st century doesn't necessarily make us any smarter, you know, better decision makers because we have the the challenge of processing and sifting through and assessing and then integrating this information. Right. So yeah. If you think about like running across a, a, uh, uh, Bene Gesserit, who's got at least female memories going back all these generations. Right. I sure as hell couldn't do anything with that. <laughs> I have a hard enough time just taking these books and, you know, sticking to the uh, narrative in them. So we have to imagine these godlike beings that you almost say to yourself, we can imagine this. We can't really understand how they would possibly do that. You can say, well, they see everything, you know, in in one instant, sort of like, you know, when we talked about, you know, ancient times and medieval times, how how can God see all of eternity at once? Right. Right. Well, he just sees it as a a vast present. And then we try to like wrap our heads around that and (laughs) come up short. Right. 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 So, you know, having a ton of probably discordant and assertive memory people yammering at you would not be that easy to process. Yeah. So it does seem that that one of the aspects that came out was how Paul saw the golden path, but turned away from it because being afraid of losing his humanity, feeling like it would be so lonely and so much of a burden to undertake what Leto II did. And there is this paradox that Herbert tries to bring out where it's like, well, you'd think if you knew all the the future and you could kind of plan for it and, and everything, everything would go smoothly. But in fact, it is this, it's almost the banality of evil as Pascal kind of lays it out, right? Because it's, it's just, it's dull, mindless boredom. You know what anything, anything's going to be happening and, and said, and it, it becomes its own monstrosity with all of that, with all of that data arrayed yeah. for you. You would have to be very careful not to be too desirous of novelty and surprises uh-huh. because that could easily seduce you and lead you off track. And, and I think this happens to ordinary people in their lives, you know, when they get bored and then they have like a midlife crisis. I guess this is kind of borne out in the text of the works too, because, you know, we see Paul, he is the quitsat satirac, you know, at least in the first novel, let's say yeah. it's a lot more clear here. <laughs> so he attains this, but yet we see in Dune Messiah that it's ultimately to his detriment. He's ultimately trapped into the, nevertheless, prescience itself becomes its own type of trap. And it's perhaps because you're observing this process. And so prescience just throws in another variable, another sort of imminent variable that you have to sort of deal with that throws off the whole sort of calculation or understanding what paths are available to you to follow, potentially. His prescience allows him to see many things that 
could exist but will not exist because you're seeing all, all the different possible timelines uh, subject to certain you know restrictions like the guild navigators can create apparently as as they reach a certain level like i think if they're like you know a master or something they can create like a bubble where he can't see it and then later on the ixians managed to make a machine that does that in uh god emperor right mm-hmm. yeah that's where they make hui nori yeah yeah Good call interesting but but you're i, about I mean you're trying to conceptualize all these different paths at once it's sort of like um you know back when i was in graduate school in analytic philosophy possible world semantics became like a really big deal yeah yeah and it was it was fun to play with intellectually but you couldn't go that far with it i mean i understood why they they got into it i think there was like an impulse from this is cool sci-fi stuff that has been coming up since like a van vote and you know people like that let's play around with that and it might help us to understand what necessity contingency possibility right right which i think it was a complete failure with respect to that (laughs) i mean it's it's the sort of thing that only works if you buy into it so possible world semantics works really great if you really love possible world semantics and want to ignore every other approach to necessity possibility modality right yeah and i've seen it misappropriated and misused for a number of different purposes since and i never got in i I never went that far into it because i I just found it kind of implausible but it sounds kind of like what poor paul and leto go through (laughs) yeah the sort of redundancy of of everything and which is why I, i guess Leto the second comes to the conclusion that a thousand years, one heartbeat, it's all the same. This sort of, which is what you kind of mentioned with the the medieval theological point about God and eternity and this, this one expanded present. Yeah, Um, actually, that's a good point. I mean, it makes it difficult to evaluate, right? By that, to properly assign things, their value in relation to other things. mm -hmm. So if you become a god like that, it would be very easy to be like, well, one interesting experience versus the lives of a million people. I'll take the interesting experience, right? Right, right. Lido Lido doesn't do that. Yeah, otherwise, I guess it would jeopardize the golden path. (laughs) Which is his, his ideal, which is his, uh, you know. His philanthropy, his love it, for humanity. Yeah. It is interesting that I guess Paul is a better exemplar of this, but I think ultimately, you know, at least early on, Herbert is really trying to, I think, critique like a charismatic leaders, like a Hitler, et cetera. Yeah. And so I think part of this too is to show, you know, it's not that there are necessarily these like essences of these leaders that make them fanatics or like lead to murder and like you know you know in in um in messiah paul reflects on hitler himself and genghis khan and just kind of like their atrocities pale in comparison to mine and this is all within paul trying with his prescience to take the least harmful path forward right. right there's also a sort of meta critique on even people with the best of intentions are going to be sort of the sort of motor of history is going to direct their them a lot more so than how they can necessarily shape history through themselves. Even someone who is this sort of singularity, this like almost, you know, demigod, whether it be Leto or Paul himself, I think Leto seems at least to maybe eliminate some of the trappings of his <clears throat> father. And again, maybe that goes back to his sort of castration or his foregoing of there's a sort of phallic jouissance that he rejects mm. by not 
being so invested in reproducing his, his own lineage, right? Just to piggyback for a second, this gets back to what the final kind of points about the golden path and the threat of stagnation. It does seem like there are mm-hmm. sections, even in your notes, I believe, where Leto II is reflecting on a certain type of chaos, which is not necessarily merely the absence of order, but the possibility for new becomings. If I'm reading Herbert correctly, and it goes against the kind of impossibility of becomings that the paradise regained of terraformed Arrakis has become, leading to the, as I mentioned, the, but also with the preacher railing against the new religion and the fanaticism, which is itself its own kind of becoming fat and lazy and and tired. You know, it's a truism. Necessity is the invention. Is necessity no. is the mother of invention? Thank you. I'm I'm <laughs> totally speaking of chaos. Yes, necessity is the mother of invention. It does seem like part of the stagnation thing is playing that out truly. That if there is no necessity, there is no hardship. There is no which Leto II imposes in his own way. Right. This new form of hardship. Yeah. See, so this they, totally they, gets they, to that that materialist element of. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this very. I think it's kind of a crude materialism, right? Sure. Of, of Herbert. It's like that cultural revolution thing. You have to till the soil mm-hmm. if you want to grow a new body or something like that. Yeah. So I guess that that's part of what I was, this need for a certain type of chaos for new, you know, just for new life to, to spring. Yeah. Forth. Cause it's like the end of history. It's like the jihad created the end of history. It's almost analogous to like the nineties in the U S with like this end of history period. And then comes this <laughs> moment, <laughs> like then it comes this singularity where it's all thrown out the window with with 9-11, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you want to discuss with political theology? Are we getting into this now? It's definitely a, a, a central theme running throughout this uh, with yes. characters explaining things along the way. There's quite a few info dumps, you know, that yep. Herbert weaves in. I had this feeling more and more as I was reading Dune, and I don't want to sound what self-righteous or or performatively woke or something like this, okay. but but the missionera protectiva, right? This after the Butlerian jihad and the Bene Gesserit's kind of rise and this whole genetic manipulation stuff that we've talked about, but the seeding of the the sort of mythologies throughout the world yeah. in order to prepare the way, so to speak, for the right for the short for the shortening of the way for the Kwisatz Haderach. I found it a little problematic insofar as it seemed strange to think that there would be the possibility of first of all there not being indigenous mythologies right, yeah. throughout the worlds but also how the simplicity with which the overcoding of these mythologies and the seeding of them seemed to not really present any difficulties is it because the Bene Gesserit supposedly have this power of kind of telepathy Such mind power control of suggestion, yeah so yeah i mean is that is that the, the simple is that the simple explanation is it is it just with that sort of mental it, psychic power that that I we can explain this uh i don't know per- per- not parochialism just i think uh, it's that i don't have a word for and, it and and i think that it's um generation after generation after generation you know you can really when you have a institution that cultivates its members within Mm -hmm. it and Mm -hmm. introduces 
not just a teleology, but a whole set of integrated teleology. Yeah. Yeah. You can really accomplish a lot, you know, in comparison to other people who are more disorganized. Right. So, gotcha. and you know, the Bene Gesserit aren't, aren't good guys. Um, no, <laughs> you know, Herbert himself, you know, was pretty clear that they were supposed to be modeled after what the Jesuits used to be like. I mean, ah, nowadays, I nowadays, the you know, when people are like, oh, you know, the Jesuits and the Freemasons are trying to take over, you're like, yeah, come on, buddy. That might have been true like 200 years ago. <laughs> but if, right. you take a, if you take a look at the order recently, they, they can't make that sort of thing happen. Well, but, you know, Herbert was kind of attuned to that. And, and yeah. the Jesuits were, you know, within Catholic orders. There's a whole conversation that could be had here about the massive diversity and formation that goes on and how orders wind up, you know, rising and then having to be reformed and all these right. things. Think about the Franciscans and the struggle between the spirituals and the regulars and Bonaventure taking over. Well, the Jesuits were you know, an order where they had a dynamic founder, Loyola, right? Who had a conversion mm-hmm. experience and then he had right. seven buddies and, and they, you know, they, they start this thing and then they had like a whole comprehensive education and formation process. Interesting. That, that yeah. was, that was, you know, superseding that of the previous really, really successful orders, which would include the Benedictines, the Franciscans, the Dominicans yeah, you know, and, and yeah. a few others. I mean, the Carmelites, maybe, you know, anyway, the Bene Gesserits are, you know, kind of a literary far off in space in the future representation of that. And, you know, if you, if you also accept the idea that I think is there very clearly in Herbert and in his characters that mythologies are are important yes yes run things you know in a subterranean way in people's psyches in a way that can't really be controlled by political authorities yeah then i think it makes more sense that they can infiltrate even like fremen society yeah but the missionary missionaria protectiva is supposed to like pave the way for the quizits hot rock but it's also supposed to in a more mundane way provide a safe haven for any poor Bene Gesserit who happens yeah. to be stranded somewhere. Right? So I, I see. There's, I see. There's a, a longevity component to it as well. Pointing to the Jesuit origins mm-hmm. of the Bene Gesserit kind of brings the point into sharp relief. Although I do see where you're coming from. And I just think it's more so for the like narrative, <laughs> to be honest. But I think also you could yeah. look at it as obviously the missionara is extremely, you know, it's colonialism. It's colonialist yeah. approach, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Obviously that's tremendously problematic on its own, right? And I think we could even go to like Oedipal myth there to really kind of link that up. But uh, gosh, I had something else that I was going to say relative to the missionara. And uh, I was thinking about looking at our own planet and the impact that, you know, because I think one of the things you brought up was, well, don't these indigenous cultures have their own mythologies? And so I just think that in this colonial world, in this sort of feudalistic approach, those peoples, indigenous peoples are repressed just the way, let's say, like the conquistadors, right? Right, right. The the indigenous people within South America, for example, obviously had their own mythologies and religions, but then I would assume that the majority of South America would identify as a Roman Catholic, largely speaking, at least a significant percentage based on that. So I think there is sort of a real world analogy to be made there. No, this is good. This put a lot of, of this in uh, perspective. And I should have even heard the word Jesuit with Jesuit, right? I think that that's, that is kind yeah. of a nod, right? And so Greg, you put a lot of that in perspective and helped me articulate, I guess, that obviously Herbert is not 
pro-colonialism imperialism in this in the sense and that the Bene Gesserits are the bad guys that was helped me bring things back in perspective in terms of this inception of little mythological seeds and especially your your discussion of the the sort of interdependence of these teleological aspects that that really crystallized it for me but um we can go on from there what what else uh Coop did you did you well, want to I just want to mention just to maybe expand a little bit on the missionara as like this edible myth because what is it is doing is like it's this messianism right and it's specifically there is a male figure yeah a male from the outside that is going to come and lead you to this land of flowing water etc almost like a kind of moses and mono it's a moses it's a moses myth yeah in a sense right which is kind of neat because they pulled moses from the water reeds or whatever but i guess going back to freud's moses and monotheism right it's akhenaten the outsider that brings monotheism to the israelites and so mm-hmm. i think maybe that's kind of the analogy in terms of like metaphorically for like a muadib coming to the fremen and appropriating you know sliding into that using this edible myth to control right yeah and then incorporate them into the overall state you know the despotic state machine for example not to mention that but then we see paul himself right what happens at the end of uh messiah he blinds himself or he he doesn't blind himself but he is blinded and then he goes to walk off into the desert very poetically so i don't know if either of you have a response well first just to clarify because i had two things but i don't want to sort of hog the conversation. One, I, I understood that Paul, he gets blinded by some sort of technological explosion, right? That's used against- Atomic, uh, yeah. Yeah, an atomic. So he's literally blinded. But then after the birth of, he has twins and he can only he only foresaw the birth of, of the daughter, not the birth of Leto II. And it seems like after this, either he loses faith in his own prescience or somehow his prescience is left it because- until then, after being physically blinded, his prescience kind of left him able to see in a certain metaphysical way, mm-hmm. right? Well, um, he could still see. I think that's how he could sort of still walk and he could see. But like, due, even due when to, he was blinded. due to prescience, though, due to prescience, right. yes, yeah. yes, correct, yeah. correct. But he, but he seems to have lost the prescience after the birth of Leto the Second, which I guess is that beyond which he could not see, since he had sort of foreclosed the possibility right. of the golden path. Is that yeah. kind of you know, it's weird. I don't know if how well thought out Herbert really did because well, remember, okay. Leto allows him to see through his eyes and yes, to so kill the guy that's trying to has them at knife point or whatever. I forget the mm-hmm. specifics of it. The other point I wanted to make before we get off the topic of the missionara was the fate of the humans that finally got to Arrakis, the Fremen. There is this yeah. whole diaspora, the the Zinsuni wandering. Do you want to say a word or two about that, that you guys would know better than I would, This the sort of political pressures that they were under to, to sort of have to jump from planet to planet before finally settling on this on this planet? I mean, I think he's strongly influenced by the Bedouins and, and Jewish diaspora, but well, it's weirdly not, I mean, he actually brings up there are Jews are brought up like specifically in chapter house or heretics i don't recall which but they do encounter some jewish people so i don't know it's kind of inconsistent it seems okay towards the end of uh dune itself right there are those appendices that talk about the religious developments and and some of them are quite frankly they make sense at the time that herbert was writing them but they're like entirely implausible now right so 
mixing together the popular form of Buddhism that people were encountering at the time is like yes. the stand-in for Buddhism along with a, I mean, does this look anything like Sunni Islam? No, you know, not really. Yeah. You could say the Zen Sunnis are much more Zen in that, you know, there's an emphasis on parable and sudden awakening and stuff like that, but it's kind right. of superficial, right? Right, right, and then right. The, the Sunni aspect, I guess, what comes in in terms of like the social organization and lots and lots of vocabulary that's taken directly from, from Islam. But I don't know. I've always found that aspect of, no, I can't say I always did. When I was a kid and I was first reading this and I didn't know any better, yeah, yeah. I'd done any study in comparative religions, you know, I thought this was pretty cool. Now I have to kind of force myself basically just to like put that to the side, the stuff that I know yeah, about yeah. various religions. I was more curious, I suppose, because you made, you made a great point, especially with the fact that it does seem just kind of the syncretic aspect, I yeah, think yeah. is, is maybe not, put it. Yeah. It's, it's maybe not as deep and that's okay. Uh, maybe that's, it's just kind of supposed to be vague and futuristic. Yeah. And so a lot of its origins are, are lost, but I was wondering about the political pressures that forced it, it. Was it just that Arrakis became a kind of last refuge for a lot of different humans? And then they eventually coalesced into Fremen's or was it that Fremen's were sort of already a, an individual social collective and had to be forced from planet to planet and or finally got to Arrakis and then sort of started to change. I wasn't, I wasn't sure I, about that. I don't think that. it was either. I, th- I think it was okay. that the Zen Sunnis were forced from. Okay. Okay. I see. I see. And then once they're on Arrakis for a while, they become the Fremen. Okay. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. I brought this up because of the political theology. It was a kind of, I suppose it was a kind of uh political pressure, right? That they were forced out. Is that, I mean, it, it, we don't really know. It could be, yeah, I don't think it's religious ever. freedom. Okay. It could, gotcha. it could have been that the worlds that they were on were inhabited by bandits and pirates. Who yeah. Yeah. Them. Okay. I okay. Know, I don't really so know. it's, yeah. it's not clear that it was, <laughs> that it was just persecution or something like that. Right. I don't That's think it's ever question. directly addressed that I recall. I Gotcha. I mean, it, it could have been that maybe the grass is greener on the other side of the <laughs> galaxy too, yeah. right? You know, or or maybe they were committed to wandering. That's interesting too. Yeah, that I get. I guess back to Coop's point about the Bedouins and this. Maybe that's the superficial sort of Sunni part, right? Is the nomadic aspect. Yeah, except that I mean, most Sunni Muslims historically have not been wandering around anywhere. It's, <laughs> it's, I mean, again, again, yeah, this it, you're right. That's that's a good point, right? I mean, you think about the the development of central Asia before the Mongols came in and messed it all up. And, and uh, I mean, mm-hmm. even after that too, right. Most people were, they weren't wandering around all over the place. Yes. Maybe we could talk about Herbert engaging in a kind of romanticizing. There, mm-hmm. you know? I have a quote from the text that I think would maybe lead us directly into this more directly engaging okay. in the sort of political theology, because obviously, I mean, you can clearly see Paul, Leto are both a type of, they're the sovereign exceptions. Yeah. And their status is sort of these demigods. But I'm going to read from the text directly to exemplify this. It was the religion of Muad'Dib which upset Stilgar most. Why did they make a god of Muad'Dib? Why deify a man known to be flesh? Muad'Dib's golden elixir of life had created a bureaucratic monster which sat astride human affairs. Government and religion united, and breaking a law became sin. 
A smell of blasphemy arose like smoke around any questioning of governmental edicts. The guilt of rebellion invoked hellfire and self-righteous judgments. Yet it is men who created these governmental edicts. So I think the important line here is breaking law becomes a sin. So there becomes breaking the law becomes this moral issue, not just violating the secular state, which, you know, you could argue in this sort of political theology is its own sort of or like humanistic church body, right? But this is really more directly so saying, you know, any transgression against the sovereign is an actual sin, presumably but that has the cost of death attached to it. So I don't know if that generates anything. Well, you know, I, I had a passage that I bookmarked in Dune Messiah where Jessica says something that is kind of connected with that. She's talking to Alia and she says, oh, this is actually writing. You produce a deadly paradox, Jessica had written. Government cannot be religious and self-assertive at the same time. Religious experience needs a spontaneity, which laws inevitably suppress, and you cannot Ooh. govern without laws. Your laws must eventually replace morality, replace conscience, replace even the religion by which you think to govern. Sacred ritual must spring from praise and holy yearnings, which hammer out a significant morality. Government, on the other hand, is a cultural organism, particularly attractive to doubts, questions, and contentions. I see the day coming when ceremony must take the place of faith and symbolism replaces morality. This is while Alia is the regent, you know, governing in, in place of the twins. And I I think there's something to that, right? I mean, anytime that you have too close of a connection between politics and religion, as I think what we're seeing on the right with Christian nationalism here in the United States, it very quickly becomes blasphemous and idolatrous and the political inevitably takes over the the religious and the religious ceases to be what it originally was, but it, the religion is still there. You can use it as a means of control and, and for gaining power and stuff like that. And we see this dynamic over and over again happening, you know? Yeah, this is the irony of the war machine that Paul assembles, right? Because the war machine, the, the man of war is meant to untie bonds, right? Instead yeah, of yeah. rebind them. But then obviously with Dune Messiah, there is this inversion, the aftermath of it, whereby we see this precisely is what kind of, I I think, leads Paul into the desert to find his final transformation as the preacher to come back and sort of rail against all the things that he either was trying to prevent or not trying to um, foment with the the religious aspect and sort of the parasites of the priesthood that that came up in the wake of his his martyrdom, his messiahdom. And so much of it too is also his, you can even see the tensions in the first volume where he's very, even against his mother, he's very kind of sharp and critical and sardonic against all of the the missionary, the prophecies yeah. that have been laid. He's very wary of them and, and feels like he's being used as an instrument, right? That he's, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. just a tool in their toolbox. And we see the, the other side of that aftermath too, right? That around him, even despite him, there are all these, these other effects that lead to this kind of religious, that lead to even the possibility of being questioning the, the government or the rule being a kind of heresy and that being so, so distasteful. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost tempted to say, and I don't want this to sound trivializing, there's a bit of coming of age stuff going on. Mother, don't treat me as if I'm just a child. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There is. Yeah. 
that definitely comes out in a uh, in children as well. I one of my favorite parts oh, yeah. of the of the book <laughs> is the just kids. the way the twins just totally walk circles around any adults that they're ever in contact with just about. <laughs> yeah, and I think they say one of them says like you adults always underestimate us because you think that we're children, but you know, I mean, think about it. We're we're actually containing the memories of people that have been around long before you. Yeah. Well, it is interesting too that in the first Dune, Alia is described as an abomination. Right. And it's that becomes very true in this. I mean, that's literally the name of the possession that is given, right? She 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 undergoes this abomination, which is this kind of, I suppose, this inability to navigate the different ego memories and whatever. And yeah. and and she she becomes inhabited or at least partly controlled by again in this Hegelian way, yeah. the the grandfather figure that she murdered, the Baron. Ooh, I mean, that's a good connection to the Moses yeah. and monotheism too there, mm-hmm. right? In a sense, yeah. But go ahead, Griff. Well, I was going to say, I think calling her abomination is something that resonates among the Fremen, but it's essentially a Bene Gesserit designation. Interesting. Right? It's a technical term that they use. And Paul will, it's either Paul or Lidl will say, you ladies don't really know what you're talking about, right? Yeah. The things are, I'm not denying that Alia's messed up but you're, you're not quite getting what's going on here. To go back to something, I mean, we brought up Nietzsche a little bit earlier and I was thinking, you know, we could, we could think about this in terms of like um, human beings being, as Nietzsche portrays us, kind of a hot mess with a lot of different things that are all little wills to power. And then we have like a, a hierarchy within ourselves that yes. we, we sort of participate in and, and arrange through our own will to power. And you could look at this, you could look at the problem of managing the different, they're not just memories, they're beings within you that consist in these assemblages of memories. They each have some stronger, some weaker, their own will to power. And so Harkonnen is able to seduce her by saying, Hey, I'll help you manage it, granddaughter. You know, I'm really good at this sort of thing. <laughs> and then she lets him take over and then she's screwed, right? Now she's lost and she's a very tragic figure, unfortunately. And, you know, Leto and Paul have to struggle against this as well. I guess, you know, you could say that it's a problem as well for the Bene Gesserit with their limited sets of memories, only only the female memories, right? You could think of it as what do you need to do in order to get the most out of your your cacophony of memories? <laughs> How do you impose your will to power and stay on top without being like eternally vigilant? And, and Leto says, listen, I've worked out this kind of solution where these different parts are integrated with each other. I'm still on top, but they get quite a bit of, um, not autonomy as such, but they get to participate. It's sort of like, it's not a democracy as such, but it's like a royal council almost, right? Yeah. Almost like a rhizomatic sort of entity. Well, the rhizome can hook up to the arboreal structure too. So it maybe it's something like that. So what I was thinking about relative to this, which would be like, maybe to tie it to kind of a Freudian sort of psychical development would be the reason the abomination applies to Alia really and the twins, I guess they technically would be considered abomination as well because they haven't developed a strong enough ego. Whereas the Bene Gesserit, they don't transmute the water of life or imbibe the water of life until, until later on. They're not born in this state of like inundation by the 
waters of life, which is, you know, ultimately a poisonous dose of spice, really. It's like a gargantuan dose of spice that ultimately allows them to access those ancestral memories. So Alia being a child, the twins being children, haven't developed the sense of self. Also Paul, right? He's already sort of reaching um, maturity in a sense, or like he's at least a teenager, right? So he has a strong enough sense of self to be able to deal with these, like you said, this cacophony of of wolves within himself, one or several wolves to to paint a more uh, significant image from Deleuze and Guattari. I think that the twins do manage it well enough though, right? Yeah. Well, how they do that is I don't think Ganema ever goes into the spice trance. And whereas Leto is forced to by, I think it's by Gurney Halleck, right? He forces the heavy doses of spice on him, but he negotiates with the past. He sort of develops a, an agreement with Harun that allows him to quiet these sort of the rest of the ancestral memories and retain his ego and not fall into the sort of fascistic line of flight that Elia takes and embracing kind of this phallic element, this like this masculine jouissance, the phallic jouissance of the Baron, right? Because the Baron is also tied to like, you know, he's this figure that he eats. He's a completely libidinal figure. He yeah, has, yeah. He's got these sexual desires. He's a, he's a glutton, et cetera. Like he's sort of this id personified. And he's uh, supposedly a, a homosexual that and, too, perhaps, right? and perhaps a pederast. It's hard to tell what, what age the boys he's yeah. being brought in the, in Dune are, but it's out, outdated now, but that's supposed to be a part of his. I think that's just to build up a sort of grotesque element, a yeah. revolting aspect of well, the Baron, I mean, which obviously doesn't play well in our current. Yeah. I mean, you can say that put aside you know the same sex issue what's wrong with him is that he's corrupting and exploitative and yes, cruel yes. And, and loves dominating and you know screwing people up for their for the sake of that and sexuality is just one way that he does that he would be just as bad if he were completely heterosexual and yeah you know right. yeah exactly he would the same way right yeah good good point it's transactional for him and i assume whatever lovers he takes are are probably disposed of in the same way that he disposes of yeah, everything you, else. You definitely wouldn't want to attract his attention. Yeah. You know, I mean, that is an interesting point to bring up though. The role that you could call it not just sexual, but romantic desire mm-hmm. um, plays in this. I mean, it's not a, a radically new theme, right? But should Alia be married to the Gola? Should Duncan breed later on with, I'm forgetting her, her name uh, is it Siona. Siona. Yeah. 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 You know, Duncan rejects being treated as just a, a stud in a breeding program. Yeah. He'll, he'll still end up sleeping with her in the end. <laughs> he can find something to appreciate in her. <laughs> you, know? you know, and there's this the whole thing that let's go back to the start. As you're, I think Cooper mentioned earlier, the whole shebang gets rolling because Jessica decides to give Leto a son. And why does she do that? Because she loves him. She goes against her own order right. uh, because of that. Which is very unlike a Bene Gesserit because they're extremely pragmatist in their like orientation, which is kind of curious. It's like this strange singularity of, and then she later comes back to the sisterhood and like we see that yeah. in children. I mean, there's a sense in which if the Bene Gesserit are really on top of their game, even love itself should be just one more force that they can manipulate the way that they want to, but it proves to be not the case. I mean, they do the sexual imprinting as well. I guess that's talked about with uh, a little bit in Dune 
with Fade and Lady Fenring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tease out so much in the movie, but the book makes it a little bit clearer, but it does seem like too part of Jessica's disobedience isn't just love, but partly pride, right? That she thinks, Wanting to hey, I, who gives oh yeah, yeah I, I can do it. I, I know that desire. You know, yeah. Right. It's hard to know if it's whether, it, whether it's her love for Leto or if it's also partly her narcissism, right? Even right. Like the, the Freudian sense Good call. Uh, of the, the mother's narcissism and in, in giving the giving birth to the male child, which is, you know, that's Freud's like, that's yeah, his that's take. The best male child. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Since we just spoke about the Duncan Idaho Gola, I don't know how much you read about this, Taylor. You could probably speak to this a little bit in a couple of facets. So one interesting thing relative to difference in repetition, and I think eternal recurrence is the character of the Duncan Idaho mm. Gola, because, you know, he first appears in, in Dune Messiah, but then like, and obviously dies in children, but then he comes back in God Emperor. And there are numerous Duncan Idaho Golas, because I think it's been something like 3,500 years since yeah. Leto merged with the Sand Trout and became the God Emperor and the, you know, etc. So there's been countless reproductions of Duncan over that time on purpose, because part of what, um, Leto's goal is, is to also make his own sort of quitsats hatterack via Duncan, who really is necessary for Krasilek, for Kralizek rather. So whenever the typhoon struggle of Krasilek actually does come to fruition for Taylor's benefit, the next book is like another time jump of something like 1500 years or something like that. And so then we still have Duncan Idaho is like the one character that persists throughout all of the published. I read the wiki on Duncan Idaho, so uh, you could, but keep going. He keeps coming back, yes, and back and back, and they're triggering through like this sort of PTSD, the trauma, the yeah, traumatic, exactly. yeah. the traumatic kernel is what allows him to retrieve his actual memories of Duncan Idaho right. and all of the successive Golas, even though they're not really like part of the same, they're part of the same series in a sense because they all resemble one another, but they're not the same series in the way that the Atreides would be or like. Or like the genetic memory that any of the prescient folks can access, right? Right. Because right. they're also there's a different type of a series there. So I don't know if either of you would want to speak to either of those points relative to Nietzsche, Deleuze, series, difference in repetition, eternal recurrence for that. Because maybe there is like this overman element to Duncan and he has a role to play again, like Kralizek. My only thing since I haven't read past book three would be I did find it interesting. The main eventuality, obviously not every time, but the main eventuality is his attempt to kill Leto II. Right. Because that would be kind of antithetical, not only in the way he rules and the, the type of domination he exerts, but in other aspects, that would be the antithesis to the love he has for the grandfather, Leto Paul's father, that Duncan seems to most be um, loyal to. Oh, that is interesting. Well, and, and to Paul. Um, yeah, yeah, true. that's true. That's true. I mean, I guess you could say it's sort of like Nietzsche's eternal recurrence of mm -hmm. the yeah. same, which I downplay when I'm interpreting Nietzsche. I think that's less important than a lot of other themes. But, you know, it does capture the one thing where Nietzsche is saying, could you stand it if you, if you actually yes. had, you know, exactly the same thing? Now, this is not exactly the same thing. Right. Each incarnation is a different set of circumstances and they behave differently. You know, there's some seem to be like some temperamental differences or 
going right. this way instead of going this way. So it's not really, there is the sense of like, well, could you bear it? Right. And Duncan is the poor bastard keeps on being reincarnated, <laughs> right? He doesn't have a choice in it because somebody else is making the decisions. Although, you know, by the end of, of God Emperor of Dune, the guy was, who was making the decisions is gone. So, you know, you get the idea that maybe this could be the last Duncan. It's not going to be, but you know, that right. he, he could decide for himself finally, right? And to go back to what Taylor was just saying, the one common thing is sooner or later he's going to try to kill Leto the second. But you got to ask, well, why is he trying to kill Leto the second? Because there is a evaluation going on that this god emperor, there's something about him that requires killing. You know, yes. you know how like sometimes we say, ah, that person's face needs punching. You know, that's <laughs> a trivial way of doing it. And this, it, it's it's like a, a revulsion that develops within him. Yes. Or what Leto has become and what he's what he's doing and what he's going to what he's going to produce. So I think that's that's an important part of it, the motivational structure as opposed to the just while well, he ends up doing this this sort of thing. Why does he end up in the same motivational structure every single time? Maybe the golden path is sterile in that respect. Yeah. And, but it does seem Leto nevertheless welcomes that. And in fact, yeah, bringing, it's something new. <laughs> well, yeah, it's something new. It keeps bringing, he keeps bringing him back. And the eventuality is one of these incarnations is going to help finally fulfill Leto the second's own, you know, chosen yeah, yeah. end with the destruction of the bridge and this his, work his out death. Right. Right, uh, but as but, but to all the others. Yeah. That's that's the other side of the equation. You're 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 asking obviously what's within Duncan, and I think that that it is it has to yeah. be found in his sort of moral fabric or whatever, because he does seem like the character, at least insofar as I've kind of read, who is I don't want to say the most static. That's not really fair to him, but who has who is sort of wears his sort of moral code on his on his sleeve beyond maybe like the Fremen in, in these other yeah. cases. And pa- Paul's more dynamic. Obviously, Leo second goes under enormous transformations. Uh, Leo, uh, Leah gets, you know, um, possessed, etc. But Duncan is, is kind of, you can count on him to be, you know, steadfast in his values. Right. That is a good point. I think what's interesting, too, is that, see, this is great, too. Like, the way that Leto achieves this is not by, there's a type of coercion. There's a type yeah. of coercion, but ultimately Leto does what he wants, but of his own free will, which I think is a very interesting thing given, you know, this kind of, I think, sort of mechanistic materialist approach that Herbert sort of follows, like maybe not always so closely, but I think that is kind of an interesting dialectic or dialectical dialectical materialist approach. Everyone has to sort of want, co- desire communism of their own free will for communism to like work, if that makes sense. So the golden path sort of has to follow a similar sort of rubric or pathway in the way that Leto sets up the chessboard and then the pieces move themselves. He's kind of guiding that process, but in a very sort of removed way. He's controlling by controlling structure rather than by controlling individuals per se although although he throws them into situations in which right things might happen right right but he doesn't ever never necessarily he always leaves a little bit of a space for there to be contingency yeah 
he does know that he's going to die at Duncan or Siona's hands, I think even, but doesn't know when that's going to happen, when the specifics of that, et cetera. I mean, it's not in there, but I wonder if he has a hint since it's really only water that can catastrophically destroy him, you know, laser guns will heat him up and then he like, yeah. you know, farts out some, some <laughs> oxygen or something like that. Yeah. And it's, I guess the only other thing that could kill him would be another sandworm, but they're all gone. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, but another sandworm wouldn't probably because, wouldn't. Yeah. He's, because well, in um, children of Dune after, I mean, that's one of the things that Leto does to show his new capacity besides like, you know, messing everything up, destroying sketches and stuff like that. He walks like up to a sandworm and the sandworm doesn't eat it. Yeah. Another sandworm could potentially kill potentially, him. Potentially. Right. But if that's also taken away, if the sandworms also kind of worship him, then yeah, water would be the one thing. I, I was just thinking about in the original I mean, Doom, sandworms can only be killed by water and other yeah. sandworms, right? I mean, atomics could kill them. Right? Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't know uh, that. Well, I mean, they would destroy everything. Presumably, yeah. Area. So I don't think it would be like, boom, it goes off. And then like like an action movie, <laughs> you, see, you see Leto slithering out of it behind with a mushroom club. <laughs> I don't think that, that, would, that would work. But I mean, it never comes up because I think by the time that God Emperor of Dune is taking place, none of the families have their atomics anymore, right? He's taken. Gotcha. Away. Yeah, 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 that, that makes sense. sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Something interesting too is that for Taylor, for your edification, yes. Um, <laughs> the bridge collapses and Leto falls into the water, which basically causes all of these new sand trout to disperse mm -hmm. and each of the new sand trout has a sort of crystal and i think he even uses or no he says pearl it has a pearl of leto's consciousness in it and the new sandworms are supposed to be like smarter and more aggressive and obviously again they have this sort of pearl of consciousness which will ultimately allow i think this is probably why uh i forget is it shiana is sort of the the young priestess who can ends up being able to control the sandworms later on it's a, bad, it's a bad time to be on Arrakis after that happens, right? Yeah. I mean, he predicts that like not just thousands, but millions are going to die and they're going to have to readapt themselves. But now they've got to deal with sandworms that are a lot smarter than what they had in the past. So yeah. can't just can't just ride them like a bus stop, you know, like exactly. a big bus. Yeah, you got to. But I suppose that's the dialectic is forcing humans to have to adapt. Exactly. Also become more ingenuous and 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 creative. I think that's the dialectic of creativity in the in this politics and this, this horrible yeah. golden path that Herbert's trying to paint. He directly says as much in, in Children of Dune. I mean, I feel like that's a good place to stop, actually, unless yeah. either of you had any more final thoughts that you wanted to wrap up on. And if you don't have any final thoughts, Greg, if you want to plug anything, rather. Eventually, I do want to start shooting some speculative fiction studies things on Dune, but I'd probably begin you know, with the first book, cause it's so rich and there's so much going yeah. on in it, but people can, you know, find that in my, my video channel. I just recently did a whole series, which I haven't completely released on the Android's dream of electric sheep. And mm -hmm. I'm going to be following that up with uh, some stuff on Dick's, the Android and the human talk that he gave. That's I think quite good. You know, mm -hmm. I do have a speculative fiction series called worlds of speculative fiction that it's a monthly thing it was originally face to face but now it's uh online and people can can easily find the videos for that I'm doing uh rogers lasney this month so 
We'll have links to the your YouTube. You I'll sure link your subscribe. channel and uh, probably because you did a you did one of those on Dune specifically, the first book already. So I'll yeah. definitely throw in a link there too. Yeah, and, and down the line, I actually do want to revisit these, and I probably I don't know if I would do like a, a session on each of them the way I did with R. Scott Backer and yeah. the Second Apocalypse because they're so long, you know. Yeah, but definitely true. on on you know the other five books in some sort of configuration. I definitely would love to, uh, if, if you're looking for anybody to dialogue with, this is one of my favorite things I bring. Uh, bless, uh, Dune, yes. yeah, bless Taylor's heart for like me asking like every <laughs> guest. We, <laughs> I bring well, up Dune all the time. So Dune and Sterner, those are, uh, those are Coop's. Uh, <laughs> my hobby horses. And it took a year or so, but I, uh, Coop has pilled me on, on both of them now. So I can <laughs> oh, officially, good. yeah, it brought, it's brought us closer together. I cornered him into it where he basically had no other choice, but to do it. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Dune and Scherner. That's, that's probably a unique combination, but you know, uh, I enjoy both of them very much. I knew I would enjoy Dune. There was no doubt. Uh, the Scherner, I very quickly found out that I vibed with him too. So. No complaints. Yeah. And now I get to Deleuze Pelham, as you've seen some of the fruits <laughs> of that today. So that's uh, that's my give and take. Okay. We can also uh, link your Twitter page if you'd like, because sure. that way people yeah. can follow and keep up with, with all the great content you put out. I really appreciated the uh, your stuff on the on the Stoics recently, the Stoics and the Epicureans and, and going back to ancient philosophy. That was good to, I'm always down to learn about, about ancient philosophy that's not just Plato and Aristotle. Yeah. Although, you know, once you get away from sort of like the standard fair Plato and Aristotle, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. in both. that's true as well. Yeah, that's true. I just feel like they get they get a lot of love. Right. It's kind of like hearing a great song on the radio a yep. hundred times and you're like, OK, I just need a break. Yep. <laughs> well, and the problem is the people who want to do ancient and all they really do is, is focus on Plato and Aristotle. Yes. I've, actually, I've actually got a piece that I'm reworking where I argue that Plato is not the best Platonist and Aristotle is not the best Aristotelian. I love it. In part because the later commentators could take their ideas and then like, you know, bring them into contact with the Epicureans or the Stoics or the Skeptics, Yeah, you know, and you know, took took certain things further than their originals did. So, like I say, Plutarch is a better Platonist than Plato is. That makes sense. Yeah, that's Alexander great. Alexander of Aphrodisias than Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost a kind of buggering in the Deleuzian sense. It's a buggering that's more faithful than the original. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a Plato Plato Gola, right? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that could be maybe a fun future episode for us to look at, maybe. Epicurus, oh, like or, ancient philosophy. Yeah, exa- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we did read Marx's um, dissertation, dissertation about oh, Epicurus and Democritus. So, yeah, uh, and I, I have an interest in Epicurus specifically. So. it's a pretty quick read. Uh, it's it's not like a something like not, forty-five pages. Yeah, it's it's a quick wow. read, and uh, we really uh, enjoyed Thomas Nail's Marx in Motion. He makes a good argument for why it helps to make sense of just the fundamental aspect of movement in Marx in all of his analyses. And I think that that helped me become a better reader of Marx rather than necessarily the, the ancients. So it was kind of a, a two birds, one stone, you know? Once again, thanks to uh, Greg Sadler for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinicon Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Thanks for having me. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of 
which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thomas people as in the block work orange.